0: Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 2 of The Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. 2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, which, despite being the single worst incident of racial violence in American history, is something most of us, including me and including today's guest, didn't know about for most of our lives. Today we are joined by Dr. Phoebe Stubblefield, forensic anthropologist at the University of Florida. An expert in human identification, Dr. Stubblefield is leading the excavation of the 1921 Tulsa Massacre, aiming to uncover and identify hundreds of Black victims, buried mostly in unmarked graves beneath a century of earth. In addition to tracing her own journey from Westlake School into this unusual profession, Dr. Stubblefield describes how being part of this endeavor became personal. As the child of Tulsons, she only learned after becoming involved that her own relative had been a massacre survivor. In this realization, Dr. Stubblefield reveals a purpose to her work far greater than merely forensic, but in making sure these forgotten lives receive the honor and dignity that they deserve, or in the parlance of a 100 years hence, to ensure that these black lives mattered. This is The Supporting Cast. Phoebe Stubblefield, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I'm pleased to have you. So, just to start off, we spoke about it for a moment before we got on. We're obviously amid this pandemic. Uh, we're heading into a holiday season uh, unlike any other. I think that we've experienced. How are you doing, personally?
1: I am coping. I, I think well. I didn't have a shutdown experience. Um, I was I'm an essential worker, so okay, none quarantining or you know the precautionary quarantining applied to me so in that regard i'm a little exhausted but i've got nothing on healthcare workers so yeah
0: uh, right
1: and i'm a little zoomed out you know if yeah. I, you know i wear my mask i don't let people cough on me or breathe on me mm-hmm. and uh, i stay out of crowds and uh, that does mean I, I see my twin less and uh, some of the things we like to do together we don't do because of the uh, exposure risk like we like to go to the amusement parks but i'm not going so this is your- <laughs>
0: This is your twin sister who also went to Westlake? Yes, yes, my twin sister,
1: baby, yeah. You know, I'm just now waiting on when I can get in line for a vaccine, but you know that's gonna be some months for most of us, so. uh,
0: So your work, uh, and now you're at the University of Florida, I've seen written, is sort of at the cross-section of kind of cultural anthropology and forensic science.
1: I really am a forensic anthropologist. Okay. I, I see the opportunities for having cultural anthropologists, active in forensic anthropology. So uh, I try to point that out because Mm -hmm. we have moments, especially nowadays, uh, like my colleagues who do the undocumented border crossing deaths, border crosser deaths in the uh, Sonoran Desert. There are a lot of artifacts. There are items, personal effects. I mean, the full range from, is that an artifact? Is it a personal effect that are found with especially scattered remains and we need cultural anthropologists to tell us if there's additional meaning to the item choices. That particular context uh, of uh, knowing the factors, behavioral factors that are contributing to me seeing a skeleton. Yeah. They go and recognize if, from my field's point of view, if I just go, just the bones please, I don't wanna be biased by what artifacts are found with them because there is a tradition of that. but. Mm. Uh, to me, this is one of the examples of bias, or how we struggle with bias. So, say you find a skeleton. This actually, yeah. what we get, we get a reported death. The sheriff says, "Hey, can you come help us look for remains? We we know where they're supposed to be. Informant. And, and but before we got there, the uh, suspect went back there and collected the remains, most of them. But not all of them. So we get to the scene and we find, say, a a cranium, you know, just top part of our skull. And we're looking around, everything's scattered. There's a grease spot in the ground. So we're going, okay, that's where the body was. There are no other bones there. The cranium we found was off to one side. And near that, we find hair, a hair mass. So you go, Mm -hmm. oh, wait, you know, it's a hair mass with a ponytail. Is it her hair? Oh, wait, should I ignore that? It's not mm-hmm. bone, you know, but it's got a particular style and color. Could it be someone else's hair mass out here? You know, skeleton, but it's not bone. Should I ignore it? And so uh, when I look at that and go, "Of course, you're not going to ignore that just because it's not a skeletal artifact." I mean, it's biological. We, as a discipline, have asked ourselves, "How can we provide a scientific analysis if we're yeah. receiving input from things that aren't skeletal?" And yet, we're supposed to put
0: together the clues. Interesting. So that brings us to kind of your current work on the Tulsa race riots of 1921. And I guess before we talk about the specific work you're doing for those who might be listening who aren't as familiar, if you could describe what, what was the Greenwood district of Tulsa like a hundred years ago, say prior to Memorial day of, of 1921. So Greenwood was
1: an economic zone. It was a, you know, Tulsa itself was a, an oil boom town. And Greenwood is, I mean, what's left of it is still a, a northern part of Tulsa, so it's North Tulsa. The idea of segregated towns was not one I developed from growing up in LA. So I i want to say, yeah, people from California may not know, realize that there's there are these segregated towns. Mm-hmm. You drive through Koreatown, you see signs in Korean. But mm-hmm. if you drive to Greenwood, there's no obvious change until you see Black people on the street, not white people. So a hundred years ago, it was this neighborhood that was well developed. You know, 30, 40 blocks of businesses, homes that were de- dedicated to a black economy, and so it it, it literally uh, operated, revolving the funds generated by black people being the support staff for white people in the rest of Tulsa. So there's a there's a class distinction. Black people were uh, not full citizens in the regard of uh, you can live anywhere you want to live. No, they were in the north part of Tulsa, but they were living very well. They were living Mm -hmm. like white Tulsans and better than poor white Tulsans if they were property owners or business people because it was the same businesses. So it's the same middle class.
0: And didn't Booker T. Washington call it Black Wall Street at one point, right? The Greenwood District.
1: Yeah, yeah, because there was so much money in Tulsa that Greenwood was an economic zone, but with added dose of true segregation between whites and blacks. And so um, it was just a po- prosperous area. It was uh, a place where you could come and make your fortune, transient population, because it was an oil town and also Oklahoma, which had you know gone through a shift of being uh, uh, Native American lands and then the allotment period ending. So you have a this transition at the time of the race massacre, we call it a race massacre now, not a, not a race riot, uh, yeah. in part to emphasize the loss of black lives over white lives, but that event, that uh, massacre could happen because of the idea that blacks weren't
0: equal citizens. And worth noting the catalyzing event for this happened on what Memorial Day 1921 when a black teenager yeah, basically uh, was accused of assaulting another teenager or, or a young wh- white woman in an elevator.
1: White, she's a white girl. She was a teenager. I don't know if mm-hmm. her uh, name was ever stated. She was an orphan who was working as an elevator operator. And uh, we don't know how in what way uh, what was it, Dick Rowland, uh, I think his name was, assaulted mm-hmm. her. And she recanted, according to the Tribune, that there was an assault. And he lives, you know, he or at least he escaped Tulsa. The sheriff got him out of Tulsa during all the rampaging. And uh, wow. so in that regard, law happened. I mean,
0: but hmm. uh, not for the rest of the uh, not for the rest of the black Tulsans. And it's worth noting that aside from this sheriff who was trying to protect him, the police and fire during the massacre joined the massacre for the most part. Yeah, anyone right?
1: who was local was not reliable. Oklahoma National Guard, they were reliable and safe. Anyone local, property stolen, house set on fire, men disappearing. And Mm -hmm. um, there's an interview in the Tribune, I think, the Tulsa Tribune, it might have been in the world, of a uh, sheriff deputy. He was a black sheriff deputy and he was a landowner. He owned several homes that had been rental properties before the raising of Greenwood. And so when he saw that there were uh, Black veterans uh, getting organized to defend the gentleman who had been arrested on the accusation of assault, uh, several Greenwood veterans, Black veterans, got organized to say, hey, we're not going to allow a lynching. The Black sheriff deputy said, don't do that. They'll come through here and raise this area. They'll burn this whole area down. And that is a realistic a conclusion because he was operating from he's a landowner he does not want his property burned down and how do whites react to blacks that say hey i'm actually a citizen here and we prefer to have rule of law and not rule of mob and uh, we're going to stand up for rule of law because we just come back from war not long ago we were u.s citizens well enough to fight for this country we're u.s citizens well enough to fight for our rule of law. The the sheriff deputy is like, no, no, they're gonna bring this place down. So yeah, and they did. The whites did, because the blacks were outnumbered. They were about ten percent of the population, my historian colleague tells me, Scott Ellsworth, at ten percent. And then not every black male was active in the in this defense. They were outnumbered. And while they did retreat, the initial round of fighters retreated into Greenwood and outward, many of them did survive to tell their tale, but uh, the houses can't get up and leave and people couldn't take their property. And the white mob, they were just going through systematically taking uh, families out of their homes, separating the men from the women, if there were still men there, and then going in and stealing property and setting the house on fire. And that's how 30 plus blocks of Greenwood ended up burned down and that was businesses and homes. My investigation derives from uh, sometime in the, either the 60s or 70s, there was active suppression by the state and city of the history of the event, You know, removing documents mm. and uh, suppressing witness statements or the ability to interview the remaining survivors. That was my colleague, Scott Ellsworth, documented that in his dissertation. And Uh, he interviewed faculty at institutions in oklahoma that were told not to interview survivors again or publicize interviews of survivors you know part of our research is just to document how many we still don't have a good grasp of how many people are missing because it was such a just a transient population
0: and so that brings me to your work so you are trying or you can tell us to excavate some of these areas i guess you're doing some Kind of looking for these unmarked graves, looking for soil disturbances in some of the areas of Tulsa to try to find the, the body parts of the dead to try to to kind of uncover,
1: to identify um, these them, lives, to find out, to document exactly what happened to them as far as cause of death. We want to do, and by we I mean the whole well this whole investigation committee, that our many committees, the City of Tulsa, Mayor Byham's office. We want to uncover the truth behind the newspaper accounts, the later narratives, because uh, we have newspaper documentation of cemetery burials. We didn't have the locations and conveniently the cemetery map and the uh, burial records were lost. I always like how convenient that is. So uh, and certainly the, the the managers of the cemetery, the Sextons, they did not passed down the specific information about where the uh, race massacre dead were buried. So yeah, we're trying to find out who they were. Some of the ind- uh, individuals were unidentified, and we want to make sure they're not in some discarded grave area. The Black men who died, with the exception of someone, the one man who was noted as uh, he was a porter on his way to work and someone killed him. He was a black man on his way to work at the bank. And then this one physician who was come, came out of his house, he was the one, the a famous physician, and he was murdered on the sidewalk uh, coming out of his house. So those two are described individuals, but everyone else is just noted as if they had a name, their name in a plain box buried in Oak Lawn Cemetery, and we didn't know where and yet these mm-hmm. people these men were men fighting for rule of law and to protect their neighborhood and yet they were buried as criminals and mm-hmm. so and then many of the white individuals were named individuals with homes and you know they are described as homes and where their bodies were being shipped to and uh, so they had you know they were citizens they didn't have mm-hmm. the stigma of being uh, just rampaging which is what they were it was kind of peculiar because they were the mob but they still got full recognition or full hmm. enough recognition uh, in the newspaper compared to the black ones who died
0: and, and there's an opportunity now uh to potentially find genealogical matches
1: well we're gonna try I think yeah I, I need the people at Tulsa to decide that but you know, it's like I think it's a Reddit thread or maybe it's a Facebook group for people who found out found out things they didn't want to know when they did their d- DNA,
0: and right twenty three and Me and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. When they we've we we have had contacts from companies that have offered to um, assist us with DNA analysis, but since we are are only now finding the remains, you know, we've seen I've seen the preservation. There is probability. There, some of the, the teeth are in good enough shape that if everything else is equal, meaning the groundwater doesn't contain inhibitors that will prevent DNA extraction, then I think we will get we will be able to extract DNA but you know it is a destructive process so I need the people of Tulsa to decide first because you can't go back you can't put the teeth back together after you ground them up, mm-hmm. we won't get the kind of results where you get, identif- you get we won't get identity necessarily. Because we do not yet have all the families traced, you know so the the gentlemen that do that were identified, we don't know who their living relatives are on paper. you know like I've started looking through the census, looking up the history, and our colleague she's done some newspaper research on some of the known dead, so some of yeah. them do have histories, but the census part collecting their census or their uh draft card data or you know getting you know you're doing the basic genealogical research where you try and find their parents so then you can find their siblings because we're only going to be able to find probably cousins and uh and for the ones that aren't even known it really will only be cousins most likely very unlikely to get great grandchildren
0: and why is the work important to you personally what does this work mean to you
1: it means finally unraveling did you remember i didn't know about this i you know i went yeah. to tulsa every summer
0: a lot of people didn't know about it by the way yeah you know?
1: but my parents are from tulsa they knew about it they didn't mm. mention it you know and uh, i get it because they grew up in the time when greenwood had recovered and then when the interstate went through it they grew up in that window so uh you know i i learned about greenwood as uh you know the place where my dad's house, that he grew up in, disappeared from. You know he could take me to the relative location, but most of the area had turned over because of built having an interstate pass through, or because of eminent domain is what he told me. Uh, he had that loss himself, but it didn't include referencing that. Yeah, there were, there was this whole area had been rebuilt in the nineteen twenties. I did not know there'd been a, a race massacre or event of any kind until I joined the race riot commission back twenty years ago. When I was asked to join then, I asked my I said, Hey, um there was a race riot twenty years ago and they're like, Yeah, yeah, your your great aunt lost her house to it and I was you know, at that wow. that was when I was just starting to do it, or it might have been the cause of my uh, own uh,
0: work research into my genealogy. So to interrupt you, you, you were informed that you had a great aunt who lost her house in the Tulsa race massacre. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. aunt Anna, she was married to Ellis Walker Woods, the principal of Booker T Washington high school. Their, their home was destroyed. And so for me, this investigation, it represents a, a, a bunch of connections personally for my family. And I have acquired a few more living relatives as a result of this investigation that I didn't huh. know I had, and that's also a plus. But it's a moment even for me as a as a displaced, uh, you know, descendant of Tulsa, finding that the the truth is revealed, the history is no longer suppressed, and it won't be suppressed. I mean, it, it truth is painful. We need to live with it because this particular one is a very large example of some of the uh, discriminatory or unjust actions against one part of the population. And um, we need to not pretend moments like that did not happen because uh, we are still doing like smaller scale injustices today with every just unjustified police shooting or, or just peculiar oh uh, let's just say peculiar police shooting of black males yeah. usually and then uh, come to find out there's no there was no connection between the decedent and the investigation that's just that's bad on multiple levels i mean it's tragic and in, unjust on multiple levels and that's ongoing today and are we going to ignore moments when there was large scale i mean yeah yeah that was what uh, the city uh, wanted but this city, you know, Mayor Bynum's city of Tulsa. He's not the mayor of white Tulsans. He's the mayor of Tulsans. Mm-hmm. So there, there won't be an ongoing revision of history and hiding this event. And we, we don't have to rely on the media, the industry, the entertainment industry to bring it forward. Uh, even though I do strongly support that boost, but I recognize, yeah. that you know, entertainment is entertainment. So you always have to say which part is true. And so right. we, we will. You're referring provide. to The
0: Watchmen and, and yeah. other things, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, Lovecraft. And neither of which I've watched. Well, yep. I read the graphic novel for The Watchmen. Sometimes I go, Is that in there? I got to get my copy out and check. <laughs> I don't remember that, but maybe it was. Yeah. But um, we, we have to provide the truth that people can access. And that is part of the goal to have there be uh, enough accessibility for our results that, you know, Joe Human can go, I'll look up that history too because of the time span, we're hoping this investigation will stay as a forensic and tone, but a, an historical investigation uh, because
0: there's no there, there aren't any people to prosecute. Right, and there wasn't anyone prosecuted, right? No, For this no. entire massacre. No, no.
1: There, there were no. That doctor, doctor, uh, and he was a great surgeon and he was just murdered on the street. Mary Parrish's account of it, uh, she had interviewed the handyman that assisted the doctor they were both supposed to exit the house together, and the handyman hesitated. So the doctor went out and got shot, and the handyman legged it and lived. But he noted that well, the doctor got shot, but he doesn't say who shot him. And it, it speaks again to the the lack of representation, lack of justice. What what would come of confronting your white neighbor that's a murderer? Well, you were you guys started it. Dared say we couldn't lynch that guy. Mm-hmm. And we have the names of some of the white people who did, were killed in the um, process. You know, there's, there were many that were killed, but you know, the point of this, at least my point and role in this investigation isn't to go, hey, uh, living uh, descendants of uh, this guy in the newspaper killed in this riot. You know, the point of the investigation isn't to victimize the descendants of
0: you know, Of course, so. of course. It's to give dignity and honor to all victims in particular, the black victims?
1: Well, uh, the ones who were defending, who died defending their,
0: their homes. you you said your parents grew up in Tulsa. You grew up in LA yeah. and, and went to Westlake school. Um, So I'm curious if you could just talk about what was your experience like in the eighties going to Westlake school for girls in LA? Yeah.
1: So, uh, I went to Westlake, uh, through a program called a better chance. And so ABC,
0: uh, yeah, it still exists. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, The, uh, I had applied, my twin and I, we had applied to a better chance, I think starting from uh, seventh grade, maybe. And uh, there weren't very many schools uh, in the LA area that would have been available to us had we gotten in earlier. But uh, we finally got in for 11th grade. All's well that ends well, because uh, I don't think I could have taken the stress of going to Westlake for more than two years and not because I didn't enjoy uh, my class. Uh, I have a, you know, still in touch with, even more so now thanks to COVID, we're in better touch and uh, we're a great class. It was the commute because uh, we had, we were on the bus, the commute from our part of LA near Englewood up to Mm -hmm. uh, Holmby Hills required a transfer and we had to be up by 5 a.m. to catch a 5.30 bus. The bus that would pass by that part of Sunset where you could get off and walk up to Wesley, was a route that was originally planned to bring housekeepers and other maids from the black part of LA up to Beverly Hills. Now it was a meandering route that existed only for that purpose. But as times were changing, you know, fewer black uh, staff, I guess, or I don't know, or but the bus wasn't very full. And if it broke, they always put these very poor buses on that route. And if it broke, you just, uh, we would end up walking and we, you know, I should have been in better shape, really. But it was uh, (laughs) the stress of how the buses were not predictable despite being on the schedule. And then add that to the rigor, Westlake uh, then his academic rigor was higher than my undergrad institution, so mm. when I went to uh u c Santa Barbara, it was a cake walk, and uh, I, I'm not saying that uh, I didn't have to study, but the discipline of you know time, how much time you put into your study, oh, I already had that you know there's no question knowing how much time to put in for you know calculus or. Chemistry or bio, and uh, the luxury of being able to get up at 7 a.m. instead of 5 to still make it to an 8 a.m. class. My roommates would complain about 8 a.m. classes. I'm like, what? You know, what do you mean? It's just 8 a.m. It's
0: just 8 a.m. And you had obviously the support of your twin sibling um, with yeah. whom you were commuting. Were there teachers at Westlake um, you recall in those 11th and 12th grade years that were influential to you?
1: Mm, yeah, the late Joni Parker, who just passed, she was a grading. Right. Teacher. Peggy and I had an argument with her about reading comic books because, uh, she was of the opinion that, you know, there's only so much time and brain power to go, you might as well fill up on classics and we we're like, comic books, i pretty good. And she wasn't going to argue the point, it just wasn't, wasn't, uh, worth it.
0: And then along the journey, you said you were at UCSB. I know you were at UT and then you're at university of Florida <laughs> and got your PhD, were there. Teachers or mentors along that journey that helped you find a passion in anthropology?
1: I took uh, Intro to Biological Anthropology class from Phil Walker at UC Santa Barbara. And I found him very interesting in what he he was a, I would call him a bioarchaeologist. Now, we didn't have that term then, but he spent a lot of time studying uh, skeletal remains associated with human activity, human and non-human, the economy of human life through skeletal remains. Uh, he worked with me a little bit on a project where I was just starting to get a feel. we didn't have the technology then, we do now, but a feel for what it can mean to try and study muscle markings, uh, the amount of area on a bone for a muscle attachment, if it can be interpreted towards an activity, a specific activity. Uh, he had me do a, ma- a uh, senior thesis on that, and that gave me my first uh, awareness of, okay, here's uh, kind of what the demands are of research. You know, what kind of specimens you have to have, what kind of tools you have to have, okay, do you have the tools, and then the need for collections. I could see how one of the limiting factors for our field was access to appropriate skeletal remains to answer the question being asked. You know, like, who is who are these people? Uh, mm-hmm. cause you have to have enough of the people to go, oh, you're you're connected in some way. Uh, biologically, you can't do that with one person or one person here, or one person there. So, Phil Walker was the first one. In my senior year, I was taking a class from him. Uh, my first human osteology course, or it was really mixed osteology. Some some of the humans were sea lions, and uh, the uh, uh, he mentioned forensic anthropology as being one of the good uses of human osteology, or what you learn, what you can learn from the skeleton, and the light bulb came on from there. And at University of Texas, there was John Kappelman doing uh, paleoanthropology. And when I was accepted to UT, I went there and uh, got a really good look at a well-developed anthropology department where there's sufficient faculty to demonstrate the breadth of a field that you could have collaborations or learn across uh, topics that might help you. Like my, my master's thesis was on paleomagnetism and has been uh, published in a uh, overarching document that describes uh, the geology of this one area that's rich in a particular primate fossil of interest to me, uh, Shiva Pithecus. My contribution to that was to actually do the, I didn't take the samples, but I prepared them and then measured the magnetic profiles in them. And they're magnetic profiles. So now when I'm thinking about the magnetometer signals that we're following in the cemetery, I'm just going, yeah, the magnetometer. Yeah. yeah, It's a perfectly reasonable investigatory tool because I, I know the value. And so uh, I applied to my PhD program. And so uh, fortunately, I was able to get into UF. And uh, Dr. Maples told a colleague that that I accepted my latest grad student and I I may lose a donor, my best donor, because she's black. And uh, there have been very many black forensic anthropologists. There, There's starting to be more, uh, but for the longest time, well, still with PhDs, I can still only name three me into right? practicing, wow. you know, that I see regularly okay. at the forensic meetings or know for sure are members of the Academy of Forensic Sciences. So that's the context, you know, but
0: it's not a well-populated field in a way for people of color. Well, I want to wrap up with some quick personal questions, but what is the status of the research with regard to the Tulsa massacre right now? What are you waiting on? What are you currently working on? When are you hoping to finish and complete? this research?
1: Well, finished probably will be years uh, because yeah. we have multiple burial locations to search. Right now we're waiting on an exhumation order because we're trying to tease out the legality of uh, exhuming the remains from the mass grave because there, there aren't laws directly affecting it there. And uh, we just want to make sure we follow the process correctly. But we're hoping for a, a way to do it so that the reports can be public record. And this is historic, so we're hoping that we can get a judge to honor that. So that's ongoing right now, and we hope that we'll have an answer on that by uh, April and May. So the summer uh, field season, essentially. We had hoped to have some remains exhumed by or analyzed by the centennial, and we're once we get the remains exhumed and and uh, reinforced in a way that we can get what information we can out of them because they're a little fragile. Okay, they're quite fragile. They're not the worst preservation I've seen, but they're about like C, C minus on the preservation mm. scale. And uh,
0: challenging, yeah.
1: We're, we're looking at the, uh, at least uh, probably a three year model, but we still have, two sites that narratives say are the location of mass graves, and that doesn't even count the ones that are even harder to survey because of construction over them since the 1920s. So New Block Park is one of the construction, it's just an area that's had so much turnover. I think is unlikely, but it's part of the, it could be there. Near there is an area we call the Canes that is Eyewitness that he saw images of a mass grave burial in that location. So we want to honor all those narratives to search those, and then we still have a whole other cemetery that was the location where uh, Black individuals, as they were reconstructing, took
0: remains they found to bury, and so and that has a unmarked location to it. To to wrap up, there's a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. Um, they relate to LA, where you grew up. Uh, we're known for our movies, our food, and our climate. What is Dr. Phoebe Stubblefield's favorite movie?
1: Well, right now, I still really like Inception. I don't know if it's my mm. favorite, but that movie is was very well done. You know, they followed the
0: Leonardo layers. DiCaprio yeah. right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and uh, but I like that they followed the layers faithfully. So it's no yeah,
0: complicated yeah. right?
1: and there's this line in there. Uh, don't be afraid to dream a little uh, larger, darling. And I just thought, oh yeah, I'll dream a little larger.
0: Very cool. Um, what is your favorite food, your favorite meal? It can be in LA, but if you don't go to, to often to LA it can be something you have in Florida or something you have at home.
1: Hmm. If I'm in LA or at least LA Maryland, yeah. one of my favorite things to do is to go to knots and this is Knots' place. That my sister, one of my sisters in LA was telling me that the fried chicken hasn't been to par, but I haven't gotten a recent assessment. Mm. When I last visited, not the last visit in February, but the last time I had leisure time to visit, uh, I, was, yeah. I was going through Koreatown, the part farther south too, where there's like little satellite Korean restaurants south on Western, and I was mm-hmm. just going through every one just to see what the banchan is. You know, I was just sitting there, I like, just, just bring me, you know, I wanna see what other than kimchi shows up on this plate table. I had a lot of macaroni salad. And I was like, you can have macaroni salad and banchan? That was before I knew that, you know, you just put whatever pickle you wanna put out there, that's the banchan. So uh, <laughs> I, I would probably do that again. We only have one Korean restaurant up here and I, 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 I haven't worn it out because of COVID, but that's the only reason why I haven't.
0: Got it. So Mrs. Knott's or Korean food? Would be, to, really the
1: be the The bonchon, Come on, in it's LA. not the light?
0: <laughs> uh, what's your favorite part of LA? It might be Koreatown. You've mentioned it a few times, but is there another part of LA that you Less love much,
1: it's well developed since I grew up there. So, yeah, I like Koreatown. Um, Disneyland,
0: Disneyland. Okay,
1: I know it's that's not LA, but it's Disneyland.
0: Yeah, that's close enough. Uh, lastly, you you grew up, your your parents raised you in LA, and your sisters, and uh, I have a, a two-year-old, I'm always looking for good parenting advice, and your parents clearly had you guys applying to ABC through ABC to to go to a great school, and I mean, that's, that's the aspect I know about, but is there another aspect of the way your parents raised you and your siblings that could be instructive to any parent? Be
1: a reader. They were readers, both of them, but they set boundaries, clear boundaries. They were good parents and I regret that I didn't have a little more time. I was just really getting to know them as humans when I like ran off to North Dakota to work and so the distance made it harder. I, I think the strengths of their-, their parenting was that they stayed together. I did not quite enter that generation of where everyone was always divorced, but I certainly was seeing the beginning of uh, single uh, parent households for uh in the black community or just to have a kid really at 16 or 17, you know, that culture was starting or becoming public, I guess it was already there. It was becoming public, not a useful economy but I didn't have to realize that because my parents were together. They were informed people in the sense of, you know, they just, they stressed knowledge. They were interested in the life Mm -hmm. of the mind and where it could take you. And so it really, I mean, I, I can say that they, they had a mission that their children were all going to go to college, but they weren't uh, interested in, at least by the time I'm the youngest, so at least by the time my, my sister and I got there, they weren't going to say, you have to have such and such degree. You know, they weren't going to tell you, uh, like you, you have to be a doctor or engineer or lawyer. So, but you did have to get a college degree and it, you know, I, it took me several years to explain to them what my degree, you know, what forensic anthropology is. They could, they would not get it. It wasn't until the Tulsa, uh, race riot commission report came out and I sent a copy to my dad. Then he finally got it. What forensic anthropology was. Mm.
0: So interesting, you know, And
1: but in that context, I've been studying it and he, he, uh, neither of them were saying oh you know when are you going to
0: get a job yeah well dr Stubblefield, thank you for spending the time uh with us and it does sound like this work you're doing in tulsa it sounds like it brought you and your dad a little closer together he starts to understand the work that you're doing you learned about a great aunt who lost her home and then in hopefully in doing this you're again bringing honor and dignity to the, we we don't really know the number, but but probably hundreds of victims of the Tulsa race massacre. So thank you for spending time with us, no Dr. Tubbfield. This has been the supporting cast.
1: We have a good evening.